All right, second chapter, Matthew's Gospel. Get that done. Follow along with me. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. All Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, no man least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed on coming to the house. They saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Before we begin, let me say what an extraordinary personal privilege it is for me whenever I am asked to pinch hit in the pulpit for Ryan. I do, however, want you to be aware of and hopefully sympathetic to my predicament. First of all, I want you to try to imagine how intimidating it is to be a stand-in for such a stupendous preacher as our senior pastor. Now, I know you know how exceptionally blessed we are in this church to have his ministerial leadership. Amen. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. But folks, listen, that means subbing for him ain't easy. And this morning, let's also recognize and appreciate a cultural impediment that we're dealing with. I'm an Appalachian American, a wood hick from the sticks, West Virginian, a hillbilly. And if I had any choice, I would have much preferred last week's subject, the shepherds. Now, those are my kind of people. But this morning, we are dealing with the other end, the top crop of the social spectrum. In the ancient world, the wise men were the upper echelon of high society, the cultured, educated, and sophisticated class of power, prestige, and position. These were the wise guys, the scientists, philosophers, doctors, lawyers, ambassadors of the age. Now, I know their Christmas carol calls them kings. 
They weren't actual kings, but they certainly were the king's nobles, representatives, and confidants. Now, their lofty regal status is quite evident since they are people of such prominence upon their arrival in Jerusalem. They instantly and automatically are given an audience with King Herod. Now, suffice to say, nobody ever rolled out any red carpet for me or any members of my tribe whenever we ever showed up anywhere. So you see, this kind of status is foreign to me. This is air I don't breathe. Now, despite the uh, disproportionate disparity in social class that causes considerable complexity for this redneck even to relate to him, there was yet another obstacle involving the wise men, and this problem confronts us all. What we have in Scripture about them is so very succinct and concise. We got a mere dozen verses and then they are out of here. It's epigrammatic. It's so brief, even abbreviated, to the point that this story of the wise men is a substantial mystery because it leaves us with so many omitted details and questions that we simply cannot answer. The Gospel of Matthew presents it as a simple, straightforward story of some wise men who come mysteriously out of the east, they pay homage to the newborn king, and then just as mysteriously, they leave, they're gone. And other than that, the Bible tells us not much about them. Now, over the years, folklore's had a heyday. Tradition pictures them as three in number, riding their camels across the desert, silhouetted against the nighttime sky. Tradition gives their names as Caspar, Melchior, and Baltazar. Tradition tells us where they came from, what they did. Folklore has it that they live very, to be very old, and when the Apostle Thomas came to their area preaching about Jesus, they gladly received the good news and were baptized by him. Tradition goes on to say that when they died, their bodies were preserved in Constantinople, but centuries later, their bones were moved to Cologne, Germany. And you know, if you're willing to pay the price of admission, you can see their bones today. You see, over the years, lots and lots of stories have risen about the wise men. Most of them are folklore with little or no evidence to prove they're actually factual. Now, there are, however, some important conclusions for us to consider based on what we do not have presented for us in the passage. First, we're not told how many wise men came. It could have been a bunch we always think of three, probably because of the three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but we don't know. Secondly, they most certainly arrived well after Jesus was born, maybe even as long as a year and a half to two years after his birth. Did you notice the word used to describe Jesus in verses 8 and 11 is child, not baby? 
It's the word for toddler, not infant. Also, verse 11 tells us they came to the house. Definitely some length of time after the stable birth. You see, this may be very wise, evil, despicable, paranoid, puppet king, Herod, ordered all the baby boys two years and under murdered. Now, I know this messes up all of the nativity scenes we have that picture the shepherds and the wise men standing next to each other. But that's not all. Matthew does not tell us what kind of star God used or how the wise men knew that specifically this was his star, or how they knew that Jesus was born king of the Jews. Now, ancient and modern Bible scholars, commentators, historians, scientists, archaeologists in the scriptures, astronomers, they provide us with what seems plausible, or even likely in terms of explanations and scenarios. You know, many are confident that devout Jews like Daniel, left over from the exile, exposed the Old Testament prophecies and scriptures to these resident scholars. That's more than likely. After all, it was their business to know and study such things. And if that's so, then the wise men may have been familiar with the book of Numbers, which prophesies in 2417, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob, and a scepter will rise out of Israel. You know, astronomers inform us that at the time of Jesus' birth, the planets of Jupiter and Saturn crossed in their orbits, creating the appearance of a brilliant glowing star in the sky. And they're persuaded this is what drew the Magi to Jerusalem. It could be. Others think it might have been a comet, like Hale-Bopp, that visited us around Christmas time a few years ago. You remember that? Still others insist it must have been a special star created by God for the express purpose of leading the Magi to the Christ child. Whichever. Do you know, I do think it is fascinating that there are actual reports by ancient astronomers in other countries at precisely the time of Jesus' birth that tell us about the sudden appearance of a star. Whatever, however, when this star appeared, these wise men are convinced that the king of the Jews has been born. And so off they go to try to find him. Now, I want you to try and imagine what was involved in that search. We are talking about an expedition that was probably well over a thousand miles. I want you to think of the effort and the expense and the time, not to measure the danger and the difficulties that were required for such a trip. And these men, after this long and difficult and dangerous journey, they do something rather uncharacteristic for the masculine gender, don't they? They stop and ask for directions. 
Do you know men for a long time have taken ridicule and abuse for their failure to get some help when they are not sure where they are going? And it may be grossly unfair to make uh, gender stereotypes, but do you know in psychology today, not long ago, they had some research that indicates, guess what? Men rarely do stop and ask for directions even when they know they're lost. Not these guys. These are wise men. They knew a king had been born. They're just not sure where. They naturally assumed the star was leading them to the capital city, Jerusalem. And so they start by going there and asking for directions. And scripture says when the wise men asked for directions to the king of the Jews, Herod is disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Well, of course they're disturbed. If the real king is here, there is no need for this evil puppet king and his cronies. And so Herod and his henchmen are disturbed. You know, Herod doesn't even know where the Messiah's going to be born. He has to ask too. But he has supposedly religious people around him, chief priest, scribe, scholar. They at least know the prophecy. So they tell him, Bethlehem. Now for the wise man, here's some good news. Bethlehem's not far from Jerusalem. They don't have much of a trip left, only six more miles. And so off they go, even though the very people who should have been so glad to hear the news about the birth are disturbed by it. Now Herod is already hatching a murderous plan. And he tries to manipulate these wise men as part of his insidious infanticide plot. You know, I think this is funny. I think God's got a sense of humor, don't you? Without Herod's help, the Magi might not have even found the Christ child. But being wise men and being warned in a dream, they do not succumb to the satanic scheme, leaving Herod following the star, they find the Savior. And they worship him. They offer him their gifts. And what valuable gifts they are. You know, over the centuries, Christian preachers and scholars and Bible commentators have pictured these gifts symbolically. Gold is one of the rarest and most expensive metals. It represents the wealth and power of a king. Frankincense was used in the temple worship of Almighty God. It represents the infant's deity. He is truly God born in human form. Myrrh, a kind of perfume, it's made from the leaves of a rose. It was used, ladies, for beauty treatments. When mixed with vinegar, it became an anesthetic. It was used medicinally. At death, myrrh was used to anoint the corpse and prepare it for burial. You recall John 19, 39, don't you? It tells us after Jesus' death, his body was wrapped in linen along with 75 pounds of myrrh and other spices. And so this gift of myrrh pictures his suffering and death. Now that's what the Christians have said for centuries. Is that what the wise men were thinking when they offered those gifts? 
Who can say for sure? Matthew doesn't tell us. This much is absolutely certain. They were very expensive and exquisite and exotic gifts, to say the least. You see, when we remove all the conjecture, speculation, suppositions, and assumptions, and whenever we discard all of the traditions, the folklore, and the fable that surrounds these men, we are still left with one undeniable, irresistible, overpowering, and awe-inspiring reality. This reality is astonishing and astounding. It is staggering and stunning. It is mind-boggling, dumbfounding, and flabbergasting. Think about this. These men were pagans. And yet somehow, someway, just by the appearance of a new star in the sky among the millions that are visible on any clear night, they know the Prince of Peace has been born. And for them, that's enough. That's all it took. They drop what they're doing. They head out on this long, dangerous trip to find him. It doesn't matter. No risk is too great. No expense is too much. The only thing that matters is just that they find him. That's all. And so they gamble everything they are, everything they have on a trip, and it does not end at the capital city. Rather, it ends up in the backwoods, little off the main road, out of the way place called Bethlehem. And think about this. Who and what do they find for a king when they get there? It's a little kid in diapers. And for parents, he's got nothing more than Palestinian peasants. Think about what's going on here. Nevertheless, Nonetheless, they fall down and they worship him. And they give him gifts that are priceless. Can you grasp the tremendous amount of faith that took? And do we understand what and how much it took to exercise that faith? You try to imagine the questions they must have had. Try to imagine the answers that they didn't have. Now it's obvious they had some knowledge about the one true God coming of his Messiah. But you know, figuratively, all of that couldn't have been much more than twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. They don't have all the answers. They don't know everything they need to know. How could they? Now, here's the essential evidence, the experience of the wise man. Here's what's 100% certainty, and it serves to convict and challenge us right now if we've got eyes to see it and ears to hear it. What light they had, what they did know, that is acted upon with complete abandon, no reservation, no holds barred, nothing held back, no cost too high, show of faith. You see, these guys just aren't play it safe kind of men, are they? They're risk takers. 
Adventurers, pioneers, not settlers. Now, folks, this is how their example slaps me right in the face and hits me square between the eyes with a two-by-four. And just maybe this will make an impact on you, too. What do you think about this? The tragic truth is that most of the time, the Christian faith is associated with playing it safe. Isn't that so? Unfair caricature or not, Christians are portrayed most often as reserved, respectable, responsible, sensible souls with preferences for things like elevator music and vanilla ice cream. Isn't that so? And it causes me to wonder if we have missed the adventure of Christian living that is exemplified for us right here by the wise men at Christmas time, personified later by the apostles, earlier followers of Christ, who gave everything, went anywhere, risked anything, including life itself, and they turned the world upside down for Jesus. But is it true of you? And is it true of me that we have focused more on the security of our souls rather than the power of the possibilities in the spirit-filled life? Is that true? Let's think about it. Think about how most of us grew up with prompts and reminders to be careful when we parted company. Didn't we tell one another? Most assuredly, our parents told us, be careful, take care. Now, when we become parents, don't we say the same thing to our children? You know, I will confess to you, I have said it at least 40,000 times myself, at least 40,000 times. I got four sons, 10,000 times per son, at least. And there are times when that's good advice. We ought to heed it. But I wonder if we have overdone it have we left any room for the exercise of faith? I imagine, and you imagine with me, how differently any one of us might have developed if our friends and our families had said, instead of take care, they would have said, take risks. And nowhere is that more true than in the realm of faith. Faith means, by definition, that you take a chance. And let's understand, chances are not given. They are always taken. It is a mistake to say, give me a chance. No, you got to take a chance. Now, in your spiritual life, have you ever taken a chance? Have you ever made a risky bet on Christ? Have you ever been willing to leave a part of you behind or what you have? Have you ever given it who you are, what you have? You ever left that to find him? You're going to worship him. That's it. You're going to give your life, your precious gifts to him. That's it. You're only going to enthrone him as your king. He's the only one. 
To do that, even in a small measure, will always involve a risk. Are you taking it? Even a small one? Most of the time, has the answer been no? Too busy being careful and cautious. Are we really convinced that Jesus is not in the mistake business when it comes to our lives and our property? Or are we willing to be disciples only as long as we can hedge our bets? Are we even remotely aware what we have in terms of resources, opportunities at our disposal? Any one of us. Handel made Isaiah's words sing, didn't he? The kingdom of our Lord will come the kingdom of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Wouldn't you love to be a part of that? Don't you want to make it happen? We can do it. In order to do it, we got to be willing to take some risks. We got to take some big risks. In this church right now, right this moment, is preparing for a short-term mission trip to Mexico. Has the Holy Spirit been prodding you to participate? Has he? Put away the paralysis of analysis. Just go for it. Do you know right now, at this very moment, there are 70,000, imagine that, 70,000 people who are homeless on one little island in the Bahamas after that hurricane. Samaritan's Purse is looking for volunteers. You will live under a tarp with no running water or electricity. It'll change your life and be the best money you ever spent if you'll go. If you'll go. Now, if you do, it won't be just to bend some nails. It'll be to share the good news that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting our trespasses against us. It'll be to proclaim with the angels, don't be afraid. I bring you good news. There'll be great joy for all people. Today in the city of David, a Savior's been born to you. He's Christ the Lord. Maybe God's Spirit is not nudging you internationally. Maybe it's just next door to your neighbor. Or maybe to your buddies. Maybe even your boss. You gonna make that trip? Regardless of what it might cost? You willing to take the risk regardless of the ridicule? Or of being maligned or misunderstood? If you would do it, you'll find Jesus there. You know, Hebrews 11 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, finish it for me, and that he 
rewards those who diligently seek him. Verse 8 in Hebrews 11 uses Abraham as the example. By faith, Abraham, when called to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Hey, the disciples didn't know where they were going either, but they just had to find him. Nothing else mattered. I got to find him. It's not enough just to see a star and say, yep, there it is. Star's here. Messiah must have come. That's nothing more than acknowledgement. That's not faith. Faith always involves a journey, a voyage of some kind, some sort. And it always involves committing what you are and what you have to the trip. And folks, it is always risky business. Now, until we do, we might see a star. We might see evidence that he exists, but we will not find him. To find him, worship him, to offer him what we got to give, it means a trip has to be taken. It means that we've got to take a chance. Where is he? That's what the wise men asked after a long, dangerous, difficult journey. Are we on that road? You willing to get on it? Jeremiah 29, 13 and 14 says, You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, says the Lord. You see it? Do you see it? This is the most important question that any human being can ever ask. Where is he? You answering that question? You gonna try to answer it? You gonna go? Take the risk? Take the chance? Are you? Any of you? Anyone? Right. Let's pray. God, we thank you for loving us. And Lord, we, we often do get comforted in this, this season, Lord. It is a season that uh, brings back memories and traditions and family and friends. And yet, God, we, uh, we thank you for the reminder this morning by your word to look for you. Lord, to take risks for you, to chase after you wherever you would lead us. God, would you, would you give us that, uh, that wisdom and that sense of adventure and that, that spirit Lord, to go where maybe others won't go. Lord, to say what others won't say. God, would you give us the faith to take a stand for your kingdom? God, we just pray to, that this week would not just be another Christmas Eve, Lord, but that uh, we would remember what it means that God is with us, that you go with us. Uh, Lord, would we uh, just be as your people, as this church, uh, searching for where you are moving. And God, when we find it, Lord, would we chase after it? with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, God. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.